Hello and welcome to Criticism is Dead, a weekly culture podcast about what we're watching and what it all means, if it means anything at all. I'm Helen Keskin Liu, a producer and writer. I'm Jenny Chishong, a culture writing critic. And this week we're discussing the new film Shiva Baby about a university student stuck in limbo at a shiva and the series Gentified about three cousins and a grandpa trying to balance their dreams and their community in East LA. What have you been up to, Jenny? How's the week been? Good, if only because I got the first shot. Hell yeah. Yeah, thank you, CVS. Are you a a, a Moderna girl or are you a Pfizer bitch? Pfizer. Hell yeah. All right, criticism instead is a Pfizer bitch. Uh, gang only over here, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah we're yeah, Pfizer yeah. Pfizer pals, Pfizer friends. Yeah. Um, and what about you for this week? What's been going on? Um, I finally left the house. <laughs> Great start. I joke, but honestly, the, the way that it goes with me is that I, I get used to being a certain way because I just don't want to deal with the worry of what it means to be going back and forth between going out and then coming back and going out and coming back. It's so much. So Yeah, it's just too much. So like, went out of the house for the first time it was really nice like it got a little bit colder in new york again it's totally fine the sun was out that's all that matters you know me being a londoner the sun is the most sacred (laughs) thing that i've been deprived of in the first 24 years of my life um but yeah so went out got some fish and chips Mm, very british very british also i'm I'm so sorry to the uk but it was the best fish and chips i've ever had wow yeah luckily cooked by a british person so not you know, we're not completely cancelled. Okay. But um, did that, walked around Manhattan, you know, did the old Tribeca, Soho, West Village situation. Mm, little John. Yeah. Uh, NYU Manhattan was fucking packed, man. Just full of, like, flight attendant core. <laughs> like, oh. Just all the girls. <laughs> all the girls brunching. Mm. Uh, but, yeah, it was good. I had, a, I had a nice little time. I got some Petey's pie, came home, ate my pie. Great day. Great day. Great. So that is a good day for you. Sounds like a pretty okay week. As for the uh, streaming situation, what did you watch this week, Felon? So this week I watched Shiver Baby and you it is now on uh, TVOD. So you can basically order it from Amazon, YouTube, Google Play. All those girls are, are screening Shiver Baby. So the reason why I was really excited to watch this is because it's an indie film. And yes, we are Criterion Channel collection bitches up in here. <laughs> well, I certainly am. I don't know about you. But I need to get an account, but in theory, yeah. yes, sure, the same spirit. I'll give you my login, sweetheart. Don't okay. you worry. <laughs> um, but yeah, so this uh, this is actually a film that was a short first, and it showed out in South by Southwest, and then mm. eventually became an indie film. So it's like a it's like a micro budget situation. So Shiver Baby is written and directed by Emma Seligman. She is she was a mere twenty four years old when she uh, shot the short. And is now 26, so literally a child. And it is starring the comedian Rachel Sennett. So these two, Emma and Rachel, they met and became friends at NYU. Which which is a a beautiful New York story. Yeah. (laughs) Um, the, The film itself is about Danielle. The, our protagonist, who is played by Rachel Sennett. She is a university student who sugars on the side, and I don't mean waxing, um, <laughs> as she tries to figure out what to do post-graduation. And she basically attends a shiver with her stifling parents, played by the legendary Fred Melamed, who, you know, if you 
you know this you know this guy. you know his face if any, you know yeah. his face yeah yeah and um and also polly draper as her mother and amidst the attendees of the shiver is her ex maya and i guess ex best friend mm-hmm. um played by molly gordon and her sugar daddy played by danny deferrari so it's um what's cool about this film is that it's all set in one house basically like mm-hmm. 98% of the film is one location which kind of uh, is the clearest indicator that it's a micro budget <laughs> film yeah. um but so before we get into this uh this film is about a shiver which is a jewish week-long mourning ritual after the loss of a relative there's usually you know it's uh basically i guess if you know christian wakes it's like a wake mm. um there's usually a spread of locks and bagels and a whole bunch of kibitzing relatives and like family friends all around but it's basically you know just coming together after the loss of a loved one essentially so yeah i'd heard that this film was a little bit buzzy in like the indie film circuit and i had seen the short actually before i watched the oh, film really? and i loved the short and um i was really excited to find out that it was going to be like a full length film it's actually quite short though is i think Which it's like, i liked yeah. i i mean yeah <laughs> yeah anything yeah. shorter like enough of the two hour long films but yeah it's yeah like an hour and 15 i think exactly yeah but i i actually came out loving this film quite a lot when did you watch it did you like i it watched well? it yeah i watched it just earlier today actually um it was yeah a very tight film tight and tidy which yep. i love um it basically was like a similar sort of viewing experience as maybe watching something like uncut gems actually where it's just so much Mm -hmm. tension and it's a lot of like uncomfortable moments and i'm like i don't know if i'm gonna watch this again because i don't know if i can say i it's like a comfort rewatch but i am glad i watched it at least once if anything to see like yeah the discomfort the tension the anxiety sort of just like ramp up throughout the course of the film i think it's, it's well made and especially for like a debut kind of thing from a a young talent uh like great job excellent job and you're absolutely right you're also not the first person to compare it to uncut gems oh yeah <laughs> yeah so it just for anyone that you know this is not a relaxing film no it is also it's not manic the same way that uncut, uncut gems, gems is manic. a little bit yeah ramp yeah. up even more yeah but this is very good for like, if you are a Jewish girl, if you are an immigrant girl that hates being around extended family also, um, yes. this is perfect for you. Like, you will relate to this quite a bit. Just because of the way that the film is set up is that we follow the protagonist, but she is basically in this sweltering house surrounded by family constantly. And that stifling claustrophobic energy is Mm -hmm. basically pulsating throughout the film. So just bear that in mind before you get into it. It is also not that bad. I think when people like when i read some reviews about it today after i'd watched it and there's a lot of that you know talking about that claustrophobia but it isn't actually that bad i just think that the film does a really good job of communicating that um but it doesn't really stifle you to death with it i would say yeah anyway you can definitely see it on the screen the way like the framing is like so tight which of course i i assume they actually did film it in like pretty close quarters in this kind of house Mm -hmm. But yeah, there are all these sort of signifiers that like get at it, but you're yeah. not going to be like sort of like itching out of crawling out of your skin. I think the way that something like Uncut Gems that was really like, yeah, your heart rate right, just like palpitating. Yeah. But like we had to just do a level. bump of coke to kind of match the energy of the film. <laughs> 
So I really enjoyed Rachel Sennett's performance. I think she did a pretty good job for a baby actress also. But what I really loved about the film itself and the themes that it was trying to explore was being at that very particular age. And, you know, Jenny and I have talked about this a million times before about coming of age movies yeah. <laughs> um, that aren't necessarily about high school and are about all the other points in your life. And Danielle, who is our protagonist, she is 22. She's about to graduate. She is like finals time, basically. And what that means to her has everything to do with this movie. Like it, it's kind of like the uh, the plot engine. And what this film tries to tackle is what power means to like a 22 year old and in this point of her life, because that age is so particular. Like you're basically in a limbo state between being a kid and pretending to be an adult, because as we know, you're not actually an adult until you're 35. <laughs> oh, is that the age now? It better be. <laughs> It better be. I'm 32 almost. <laughs> I haven't figured it out yet. <laughs> Please <laughs> just give me the grace of time. Um, so I think it tackles that theme quite consistently throughout the film, especially with regards to her sugaring. So yeah. sugaring is, if you don't know, it's basically sex work. You are, you know, there are some apps that help you do this and they're featured in this film where you find someone who is your quote unquote sugar daddy, i.e. provider of money uh, in exchange for anything time spent and that can you know that umbrella of time spent can mean anything it can be sex it can mean dates um it can mean simply just talking and then as a sugar baby um you are much younger basically you can be anywhere between the age of 18 and 25 in relation to <laughs> what the age of your sugar daddy is so i say all of that to say that sugaring it can like most sex work it can seem like power i think given danielle's age and given the reasons why she's sugaring i don't know if she has a firm grip on what that power looks like or what it means to her um because the way that the film approaches i guess the lie that she tells herself about sugaring especially you know within the physical like the tangible strict physical confines of that house that she is in all these different people from different parts of her life that she had compartmentalized have now come together in this space and kind of muddied these lines um it's pretty interesting how she loses power basically and the way that the film kind of takes her on this journey of that loss and how she tries to kind of grab it throughout the film and then like loses it again and then tries to grab it yeah um so it's cool yeah i thought it was an interesting like push and pull um and like the lie she tells herself about you know power and sugaring like to be more explicit is like you know when her her friend her her ex um when she asks her like you know why do you do it like danielle responds like you know one for the money and then two like i guess i just want to feel like powerful sometimes but then like through watching this through seeing the interactions with her her sugar daddy um what's his name like max or something max yeah it's max yeah Yeah, he comes across as such like a i don't know kind of a scummy person in a lot of ways it's kind of pathetic yeah yeah and then you can see like his own sort of relationship to power or like Mm -hmm. his wife is a sort of like girl boss-esque a very successful beautiful woman who is the main breadwinner for their family Mm -hmm. and then it leads you to like question like okay so then why if his wife is so amazing and beautiful and he has this incredible life like what what is he doing on these apps soliciting uh girls like danielle and you realize they're mm-hmm. him too like oh it's his way of like trying to get some form of power yeah um and then he actually, wants to be the breadwinner in yeah that transaction. in some kind of transactional relationship yeah. and then yeah it's just so revealing of like where the power actually is versus like the sort of grasp or like appearance of power that danielle 
wants to believe uh, she can get through this and mm-hmm. maybe it does feel like empowering in some way to her but yeah. you know yeah the all given all these dynamics where she's in life like it's yeah it's a really interesting look at just power dynamics in mm-hmm. this sexual transactional relationship and e- elsewhere in her life because you know when the film begins the first scene is her with max with her sugar daddy and you can't tell if she's disgusted by him or simply tolerating him or somewhere in between the two of them because that's that's the energy that you get from their very brief interaction at the beginning and then later on in the in the film when they're at the shiver and she sees max and then she sees spoiler alert his wife and his baby you can tell that this bothers her quite a lot and then you realize like it's not necessarily that she likes him she just has realized that she is a daughter in this in this instance in this situation and then so she's not you know she's not the provider of youthful sex yeah it's really cool it's actually it seems obvious when we're talking about this but when you're watching it like that dynamic and the way that they interact with each other it seems very like seamlessly done mm-hmm. um another thing that i really liked about it it this explores what it means to be a good daughter mm-hmm. and also to be a good jewish daughter i think specifically you know her parents you find out pretty early on that she is being bankrolled by her parents like her parents are paying for her bills and um so much of their anxiety about her is about what she's going to do because they still don't really know what it is that she's doing as her major because as it's communicated to her she keeps changing it and she doesn't really know how to explain it and she also doesn't know what she wants to do afterwards Mm -hmm. and this is like a running point of conversation between her mother and her it's just really like that was very (laughs) i wouldn't say triggering like i think that's too strong of a word but it did just remind me of where i was at when i graduated yeah um because i was unemployed for like a year um i couldn't find work and just that interaction of just like my mum just every now and again just coming in to check in on me and like you know in the kitchen it would oscillate between frustration and desperation and that just like those conversations where she was just where danielle is like are you disappointed in me to her mother and it's just really sad because i think i've asked that several times yeah to my mum as well yeah, I, really I love the the relationship they show between parents and Danielle, and especially the mom and Danielle. Yeah, like you said, like, are you disappointed in me? And then the mom is like, she also is sort of like oscillating between like, oh, honey, like, no, I love you so much. And then, but also like, this like worry and sort of doubt and suspicion, like, are you dot dot dot? Yeah, yeah which is, I think, captures that sort of tension really well. And also, mm-hmm. <laughs> I... I mean, you said you thought maybe the word triggering was a little strong, but I will say, like, I was also sort of thinking of the word triggering in terms of, like, just the overall interactions between everyone stuck in that house uh, that she had together. And, like, various, like, neighbors, uh, you know, moms, friends, grandmas, aunts, like, Mm -hmm. all these people within the same community who know each other pretty intimately, who basically just, like, talk about each other all the time talk about each mm-hmm. other gossip at each other compare like their child like their children's achievements yeah that was so i don't know like <laughs> i guess authentic authentic is a dumb word but it's like uh, no but it's true like yeah. who amongst us with you know a, an extended family or a tight-knit circle of friends and family doesn't know what that means yeah you know like that doesn't know what that looks like is is it every day that you comment on my weight every time you fucking see me yes oh, apparently all it the is time. I all mean, the time at least for like i mean i have memories of just like my own seeing like extended family at like the rare reunions in china with relatives or here at like <laughs> 
Chinese parties, like with the same group of like my parents' friends or whatever. Yeah. Oh, so much of like, oh, you've you've gained weight, which it usually was like, oh, you've gained weight. Um, how are you doing in school? Like, what are you majoring in? Are you seeing anyone? Everything. All of that. All the stuff. Um, yeah. Which I fucking hated, and that just brought this whole out, like dialed up to the to the tenth degree here. Yeah. Um, a lot of people have actually been commenting about how this feels like a horror movie. Oh, especially certain sequences, like as a climax sort of approaches. Definitely. And I get it. I think in terms of the eerie thriller aspect of it, there are, like you mentioned, certain scenes when she has, I guess, just not turning points, but just when she falls further and further into some version of insanity or some yeah. shade of insanity. Close to losing it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think that the, the main reason why a lot of people talk about it is because of the score which is by ariel marx just strings being plucked Mm -hmm. is always going to be tense (laughs) so and there's a lot of that going on it's really good um i really like the climax at the end and Mm. you know there's a scene at at the end where like you know if you have a protagonist that is falling further and further into some version of mental descent uh there's a point of break and um that scene for Danielle, it comes in the form of her dropping like a vase on the floor and the glass breaks everywhere. And it's a table that that has a sidder. I think that's the right way to pronounce it. I'm so sorry to all our Jewish listeners that are listening. Um, but they're prayer books. And she, much like in Islam with Judaism, when, when a sacred book or a prayer book falls to the floor, you have to kiss it. And mm. she does that repeatedly. And it's just, it's such a tender, really tender moment. Yeah. Um, which along with the broken glass is, um, it's really sweet. Yeah. And her hands yeah. are like kind of bleeding because she tried yeah. to sweep up the glass with her hands and it's a really vulnerable moment. And I think yeah. that captures that. I will say her mother is really nice. Her mother, she's really nice. She's yeah. really nice. <laughs> My mom would not let me do any of that. Uh, from the very beginning all the way down to the end like (laughs) she does micromanage her daughter don't get me wrong it's not like she doesn't but there are several outbursts that happen throughout this film that like my mom would just send me packing immediately (laughs) because she's so concerned about being embarrassed in front of other people Mm. Uh, whereas i think danielle's mom is actually really nice yeah she's (laughs) like genuinely concerned about her daughter and you can sense the the love and this frustration, but the love is like very clear. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, overall pretty good film, but uh, was there anything that you didn't really like? Um, I I mean, not anything serious. It's just that I kind of wanted to know a little bit more about Danielle outside the constant confrontations that she seems to be having. I know that we love that the film is short. I also love that. But I think just adding an extra 15 minutes just to have her character be a little bit more padded out, I think would have helped. What do you yeah. think? I I think that makes sense. Like, it's very reactive. Mm-hmm. Um, she mm-hmm. is basically like, playing off of what is happening to her and around her all the time, yeah. which makes her great sort of like reaction shots, expressions, just like, yeah, the, the ticks um, that come out when a person is pushed to the edge. But yeah, yeah in, you know, I think you you kind of even get a little bit more of a sense of personality or I guess like essential core from someone like Maya, mm-hmm. who is a little bit more of the like aggressive and like approaching and assertive um than danielle who is so being like just like you know surrounded by so many people just like pricking at her yeah Um, yeah yeah who is your favorite character not in terms of like liking them but i thought Mm -hmm. diana agron's character who is the the wife of the sugar daddy um, max was such a 
funny. She wasn't funny, but it's just such a like funny character in terms of yeah. like, making her just like the girl boss, but also one who is like immediately picks up on what's going on and then like yeah takes it upon herself to kind of both save and punish and like hold it against yeah. Danielle. <laughs> She's so good. Yeah, the fun my fun fact about her is that she so she plays the Shiksa wife, which is like the non-Jewish girl wife um of Max. And um Rachel Sennett is actually the shicks in this situation. She's she's oh. Catholic, so she was raised Catholic, and Diana Agron is Jewish. So it was oh. just funny. It was just because there's like a an inter there's like a running joke about the reason why she brought a baby to the shiva. Yeah. Um. But yeah, that that was like a was like a fun fact. Yeah, I think my favorite character is probably Molly Gordon's character, mm. uh, Maya. Yeah. She's just so good. And I was trying to figure out where I remember her from, and she's also in Booksmart. Booksmart, right? Yeah. Yeah. She's like the hot nerd. Or she's one of the popular girls, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, who's like really smart, actually. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. think that was it. I guess we'll um, probably be seeing her in more, I guess. This is just like the, the start of her career, maybe. Um, but yeah, good show from like from all around, I think. I'm glad yeah. I watched it. I'm glad I watched it, too. I think it's really cool to kind of, first of all, see or watch films made by very young female fil- filmmakers. That doesn't necessarily happen. Most female film filmmakers are fucking 40 plus. I also love the addition to like the Jewish film canon mm. of like nervous energy, dark humor. Because I, I know that like, you know, we talk about this feeling claustrophobic and it feels like a horror movie, but I kind of rank this under comedy. Um, it even is though it's really sad and serious. Funny. It is very it's, funny. It's like au- the awkward moments are just so like, like the nervous laughter just sort of like like escapes yeah. from your mouth like out of nowhere. Exactly, yeah. I read in a in an interview with Emma Seligman that, you know, they asked her what makes a film like a Jewish film and she you know, she was saying that it's like a nervous, anxious energy and then like the humor mm. is really dark and it kind of compares it she compares it to British humor, um, oh. which I completely agree with. I think it is definitely like if there was a Venn diagram, it would just be a full circle of the type of humor that like, you know, what people consider Jewish humor and British humor. Uh, but she also said that, you know, she's Canadian actually, she's from Toronto. So like for her, it's like she gets a little bit that from like the old commonwealth <laughs> uh, <laughs> culture that canada has but it's really good man i really loved it um i would love to see more films like this and um yeah all right babe so what was it that you watched this week i watched the series gentified on netflix so this came out last year it's just one season so far but it's been renewed for a second um, it's created by Marvin Lemus and Linda Yvette Chavez and executive produced by America Ferreira. The America Ferreira, baby. Yeah. Which, and actually she's the reason I checked the show out because I was mm. like, oh, I wonder like, what was that thing she was working on when she left Superstore? Turned out to be this. Good for her. Um, good for her. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so this series, it stars uh, a few people, but predominantly JJ Soria, Carlos Santos, Carrie Martin as Eric, Chris, and Anna, three Mexican-American cousins who live in Boyle Heights, a predominantly like Chicano neighborhood in LA, as well as their immigrant grandfather, who's called Pops by everyone. He's played by Joaquin Cosio, who owns a struggling taco shop that is like, you know, hard times, rising rents, stuff like that. So yeah, it's a pretty nice short season this first season to get through i think they're only like 10 episodes are all like mm-hmm. not very long i like it for a few reasons mm-hmm. one of which is 
the characters. They kind of start out a little bit too much like stock characters. Like each of them is a little bit of a stereotype in some way. They are kind of like stand-ins for issues, but they kind of mm-hmm. develop pretty nicely and sympathetically over the course of the whole series. So, um, I mean, Pellin, were you able to watch all of this or how many episodes are you in? I am four episodes in. Mm. Yeah. So maybe so still a little bit days. like stock character, character realm. Yeah, but I'm still enjoying it because the dialogue is really funny. Mm, mm-hmm. Like it moves really fast. The acting is very good. Um, yeah, but the dialogue. Natural. Yeah, yeah. Like the dialogue is really like the comedy side of it. They've got that down. But yeah, I, I'm enjoying it so far. But if you say that it's going to get better, then that just makes me even more excited. I think yeah. that's fun. Yeah. Yeah, I think it does. And so obviously, out of this cast of characters, like each of them kind of have their own specific situation going on or their own mm-hmm. sort of like dream or dream life they're pursuing. Like, Eric is this tough guy who actually really just wants to like have a family with his baby mama who is pregnant with their kid. Um, you know, Chris is made fun of as like a coconut. Like people say he's not really Mexican, even though he is, he just kind of grew up in a different setting. Yeah. He comes off like, I don't know, a little bit sort of like millennial douche bro sometimes. Yeah, but he's, he's like, uh, was it Idaho? Yeah, I think he. they said he grew up in Idaho by a dad who apparently, like, they joke, like, wanted to get away from other brown people. <laughs> yeah, um, so he's 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 unfortunately just because of his surroundings, like, a little bit more assimilated into white culture. Like, yeah, so he's thing. sort of like the, he's returned, uh, you know, home here, like, to try to pursue his dream of becoming, like, going to culinary school and, like, becoming a Michelin-starred chef and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's Anna, who is the girl. She is uh, an artist, you know, really good painter. She's queer. She has a girlfriend. She's, like, balancing sort of, like, being politically active and supporting her girlfriend who works in, like, you know, housing, displacement, homelessness, gentrification, mm-hmm. stuff like that, versus, like, wanting to actually be, like, a, a famous and, like, successful artist. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then, of course, there's, like, the grandpa who owns this taqueria who he's a widower. Um, He's, like, an immigrant. He is, like, initially resistant to change but becomes more open to it. Um, Who's your fave character so far? I'm going to say Chris. Okay, tell me more. I think it's mainly because he just keeps getting, like, rinsed by his cousins. (laughs) And he takes it on the chins pretty well. Like, he's just, like, great. He's kind (laughs) of chill about it. Yeah, he's very chill. He's very dry humid which mm-hmm. uh, you know res- i respond well to yeah um but i'm it's he's also seems to be a little bit more complicated as a character than the rest of them yeah so i'm curious to see how he kind of navigates identity um yeah which seems to be you know at the front and center of basically what all of this is about mm-hmm. yeah yeah how about you I agree, Chris. Like, there's a lot of potential there to explore, like, how he feels about this, like, mm-hmm. and his relationship with his dad, which is very contentious. And, mm. like, you know, where is his mom? And this yeah. season, I will say, it doesn't, like, quite get into all of that yet. But I hope mm-hmm. that season two will be able to explore a little bit more about Chris. Um, because there is that, like, fine line between, like, you know, wanting to genuinely bring about change and being creative and innovative yeah. versus like the other characters, some of whom are a little bit more stuck in their traditions and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, a fine line between like being the, the innovator versus like being like, you know, what other people would say is like a gentrifier or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. So there's a lot of potential there. I, I, I mean, I, I like all the characters, honestly, by the end. Um, mm. some of them start out a little bit more annoying, but. I feel like Anna has some of the most touching storylines so far in mm. this 
season, which I think you'll get to further. Mm -hmm. But just like her sexuality, her having this girlfriend who was like very politically active on this side um, versus just trying to want to help her family on this other side that creates like a lot of sort of conflict and sort of like being pulled in different directions for her that I can see is very hard and painful. So that is sort of my sympathy for Anna. Yeah. Um, But yeah, so obviously this show is about gentrification. Um, (laughs) So the the title is referencing a term coined in Boyle Heights um, that combines, you know, the Spanish word for person with gentrification. uh, And this apparently refers to like upwardly mobile, like Latinx people who are often young and they seek to open businesses or like put money back into their own neighborhoods Mm. but by doing that they may actually end up bringing about uh their own form of like gentrification and displacement and stuff like that um so that is like one of the core tensions of the show which Mm -hmm. i think it like gets into in like some ways that are a little bit broad but some ways that are like surprisingly nuanced i Mm. think like different intersections of like class and like generational conflict and how those kind of like color which side of this debate that you're on yeah so one of the most obvious of course is like how to keep this taco shop open um Mm -hmm. do you change your menu do you raise your prices how do you do this without you know alienating locals and like without you know selling out whatever selling out means to yeah outsiders or hipsters who they portray as mostly white people some asian people who like yeah. invade the restaurant from outside but have, so far have you seen the episode where anna paints a mural no okay I'm that's gonna yet. come up mm. um but that one is also really heartbreaking because it involves like queer brown love versus yeah you know homophobia that is in some pockets of like the mexican-american community Mm -hmm. honestly a lot of pockets of like certain immigrant communities yeah and how do you sort of live your truth as like a you know young queer brown person without while like still living among your community yeah which is really hard i don't know did you feel like this portrayal of gentrification as a whole how is it like turning out so far in the first few episodes that you've seen it's actually i mean it's doing its best because it is complicated gentrification in the hood whether it's done by white people or whether it's done by your own kind of people like it's been talked about with like harlem and new york and like black gentrification in Mm. in harlem like it it's complicated it's i keep saying complicated but it really is like it's just it is something that is this is an economic problem like a socioeconomic problem that Mm -hmm. um, can't really be properly expanded out on a TV show, let alone like a feat, a journalistic feature or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, what does ownership look like? What does surviving versus thriving look like? I think it does its best to to try and explore these themes. It doesn't necessarily give you the answer. It just, I think it leaves it up to the viewer to, to decide what they think about it. You know, that question of changing the menu comes up pretty early on in the mm-hmm. season. And, you know, we, you and I, we work for a food publication. We've gone through the ringer of, oh, yeah. <laughs> of, you know, five years ago, four years ago, fusion food being terrible and then moving into authenticity being like the one and only truth. And then. Uh, now we are coming back full circle to like fusion is fine because fusion is natural. And what does authenticity mean? Right. Um, and, you know, is it according to the chef? Like, as immigrant kids, we like nice things sometimes. Like, mm-hmm. we like the fucking gentrified look sometimes. And how yeah. do we grapple with that? You know, like, I like walking into a fucking small plate spot and having my glass of wine and it being aesthetic as fuck. 
Like that's, that's yeah. what, what do you want me to do? Like I like right. these things. And yeah. then so how do you grapple with that? Yeah. Yeah, like you said, it doesn't really present the answers, but mm-hmm. how could it? Like in real life, like we don't even really have the answers. Yeah. And I will say it does like get better in talking about this stuff too towards mm. the end, especially there's like sort of a climactic um blowout between two sides, one of whom is like protesting the restaurant and like the changes they're trying to make and stuff. Mm. Um, but it gets like really personal and because everyone knows each other, you know, this yeah. is the same community. They're people who have like eaten at um the Mama Fina's Stacaria and they've like they've gotten free food. They've grown up knowing all of these cousins and the grandpa. Yeah. Um but also like it's their neighborhood too. Yeah. Um, but it's all of their neighborhoods. You know, they all mm-hmm. live here. It's mm-hmm. it's such a complicated question. And I think the show like is pretty earnest in trying to address like the different aspects about about it and presenting yeah. various different sides without you know coming down too much on one side or the other yeah and it, i think it the show excels the most when it kind of does this as personally as it can through these personal moments and characters and storylines totally yeah. yeah yeah i don't i don't think they've come up yet but there will be also like sort of a couple of one-off episodes about other characters sort of like at the orbit around these central characters like there's mm. a mariachi player and his son and there's also like anna's mom who works in a factory mm. um and those are also interesting looks at you know how everyone's lives are impacted by everything that's going on yeah um so like less didactic a little bit more personal is definitely like when the show shines the most i think yeah and when you when you are creating a tv show that is uh trying to be a little bit more representative of different types of communities the best way to do it is not so much the breadth but it's more about the depth of these types of characters that live in this kind of community uh because we don't they're never usually offered that kind of depth so it's nice that that is what it's like uh, as the series progresses that's kind of what's going to happen i think that's really smart yeah Um, at least like just you know another work to add to sort of like the the very small but like growing canon so far um Mm -hmm. Yeah. And another interesting question, like, RE gentrification that I was thinking about, like, is, like, I think it's been raised is, like, whether this show and others like it, like, there is Vita on Stars, which is also about gentrification in Boyle Heights. Oh, I see. Um, yeah. Whether these shows themselves are, like, contributing to gentrification of this neighborhood, or at least profiting off it, which is a hard question. Mm. Like, the showrunners... You know, according to interviews, they did like try to involve people from the community. They tried to like put their profits back into the the stores that they filmed in and the neighborhood. Mm. But they're like organizations like Defend Boyle Heights and like other sort of activist groups that were like adamantly against the show and other shows like it, where they're like, "You're coming into our neighborhood. You're making people like want to come here, or like you're like at least profiting off of our pain and like what's going on here." Mm. And again, there are really no easy answers to this. Um, mm-hmm. But it's it's like all of this, everything about gentrification, it's just like very hard. Like everyone has certain stakes. Like even here, like the showrunners, they have stakes in showing, you know, people or communities that they feel like they've grown up with um, and are familiar with and they want to show their stories. So it's tough all around, I guess is what I'm of saying. Of course it is. I mean, the reason why gentrification is tough is because the state is completely removed from the equation. Mm-hmm. So then obviously it's up to, you know, the, the mammoth of real estate developers versus the grassroots organizations, which are tiny. And that, that discrepancy, like, how do you even move against that? Like, do you then become 
a, a, a Latinx real estate developer? Is that what we have a Latinx real estate developer on this show and he's, yeah. he's complicit. Mm-hmm. So it's not about that because it, it, once you take the state out of it, once the government is the one that is completely washing their hands of this financial exchange, it will run amok, which is what gentrification does and which is why it's so complicated because mm-hmm. it's reliant on money. And that's the only thing it's reliant on. It reminded me, obviously, I think Insecure gets into it a little bit oh, in yeah. the latest season, mm-hmm. especially because Issa Rae's character is organizes an event to help the neighborhood that she lives at against um, gentrification and wants more, you know, black owned businesses to be at the forefront. Mm-hmm. Um, you can do your best and the ogling forces will still ogle. I understand why some organizations don't like films like this. I think especially for Gentrified, if it if anyone watches this as a as a person that does engage in gentrification and is a little bit more respectful of what is happening and is a little bit more mindful of it, um, I think that's the that's that can only be good. Is yeah. is kind of where I'm at. Yeah, I think that. that's a great point. Yeah, so I hope like people engage with it thoughtfully. Um, I hope more people engage with it. Honestly, I I think more people could watch the show. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, it for like a show that is like. A little bit obvious or on the nose sometimes, a little bit uneven, I would say, sometimes in like tone. Mm-hmm. It's still a good watch and I I had a lot of fun watching it and it made me think a little bit, which is, you know, that's a the great ideal mix from like any work of, you know, art or creation or TV or film. You know, you like watching yeah. it and you like thinking about it a little bit more. This week in Culture Notes, in case you haven't heard, Reggie Jean Page of Bridgerton fame, the famous hottie Duke, he will not be returning for season two. It has been reported. Yeah. Um, he was contractually only obliged for the first season, and that was his story, and he did it, and he's not going to take part in it anymore, which is like, I think it was a bit of a shock to a lot of people who saw the news, because they were like, damn, no more hot Duke? Um <laughs> But it was really like, that is what was the plan all along, and that's what he had in mind. And I assume that he's getting hit with a million off- other offers right now, because again, very hot. All of The whole world is your oyster, if that's the case. Yeah, yeah, he, he nutted in her, so his job is done. <laughs> Sorry, spoiler alert, <laughs> yes, I guess. TLDR. <laughs> that is the, the most concise summary. Um, but I, I guess what I wanted to talk about was... How this sort of led into a greater conversation between uh, you and you and I, Pellin, about like how he is definitely the breakout star from this. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, it seems like there have been an awful lot of male breakout stars compared to female breakout stars, just like as a trend in you know this recent history or these past several years that I can even think of. Um, so yeah. what were some of the examples that you were telling me? We were texting about this before. Well, I think with Bridgerton, obviously we started talking about this because we were like, that's crazy. It's probably happening because he has other roles. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously we found out that in the books, his character does not show up either. So it, it makes complete sense as to why he leaves. But the reason why we talked about it is because the buzz around Reggie Jean Page is incredible and his female castmate uh, Phoebe Dinova, where is she? I don't know. And then the other example that I was thinking about was Normal People came out 2020, February, around that time. And immediately, 
Paul Mescal, who plays Connell in that, it shot to fame. Like, he just became the hottie with the chain. Mm -hmm. His female castmate, Daisy Edgar-Jones, who plays Marianne. Marianne, sorry, I had to do that (laughs) one more time. Um, So Daisy Edgar-Jones, nowhere to be seen. Immediately, the hype from her was was running pretty lukewarm. Now I think it's pretty cold. We have no idea what's happening with Phoebe Dinover and Daisy Edgar-Jones in terms of like what's coming down the pipeline for their career. It's just, this is more a conversation that we were having about the hype and the buzz around, you know, the discrepancy between the female and the male stars. And then the reason why uh, we, we were thinking about that, because a couple of years back when uh, To All the Boys I Loved Before shot into fame as a film franchise basically as you will remember Noah Centineo became incredibly famous and his female castmate Lana Condor not so much not so much I will say that much don't don't get me wrong it's not like everybody on Twitter was not rooting for her and still continues to root for her because she's amazing and beautiful um, but in terms of the larger mainstream media Noah Centineo has gotten a million gigs whereas a li- yeah. it feels a little bit quiet for Lana and you know it's not like female like young female actresses are not getting famous it's just there seems to be a certain type of female actress that isn't does not seem to be getting work in which i in which in my opinion is like the girl next door type which daisy edgar jones phoebe dinover lana condor to me firmly kind of file under what do you what were, so what were your thoughts? I know that we've talked about this over text, but like what were your thoughts about that? Yeah. I mean, I thought this was a really interesting observation when you made it, and I definitely thought it was true, and at least like as a sort of pattern or trend of some sort over the past few years and um my thoughts were like almost around if this is like overcorrection for like the issue of objectification. Yeah. Like now we're in the era of the horny on main for like women sort of yeah. thing like women can be free to be horny they can have so many internet boyfriends like internet there are a million internet boyfriends yes. from like oscar isaac to um definitely noah centineo for a minute before you know noah centineo continued to be himself just like such a chris evans right now everyone in marvel yeah. um there's like so much hype that i think is driven in large part by like uh you know straight women essentially mm-hmm. yeah. they can really make or break a star and you know naturally as like being like straight cis straight women who are like thirsting over you know these pretty much like hetero male stars like they are helping the buzz build they're helping like rocky these people up to fame in a way that just like naturally isn't the same way for the the female counterparts yeah and and seeing themselves in the straight women depicted on the screen like you said like the the girls that we're talking about they're the conduits um Mm -hmm. and i mean i guess you know i think with daisy edgar jones it was a little bit tough because the part of the reason why paul mescal became so popular was because of his ability to showcase his acting depth um Mm. of skill whereas her character marianne in normal people like she is reserved like that is her character which makes it really hard like you know the way that people respect acting is if you're crying your fucking tits off or like screaming in a rage like for some weird reason people think that that's like the pinnacle of good acting obviously the best acting is when it's like super reserved and you're able to communicate there and i think she was really in her bag with her performance but people just didn't respond to it and you know a lot of that has to do with what versatility as an actor means because to be a star you know to to finally become a star 
or to have a star making performance, you have to be memorable to look at and then memorable for your skill. Um, mm -hmm. and I think it's a little bit tough for, for these girl next door types because they do have to be a little bit more muted. I don't know. Their characters have to be like blushing and like overwhelmed by the crush that they've got in front of them. And, you know, that seems to kind of take over their, their actual depth as a female character and which makes it hard to kind of showcase that performance. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, you think of, of other female actors that have been able to shoot to fame. Obviously, Florence Pugh is one. Florence Pugh is a very good actress. And I think for mm -hmm. her, her versatility in acting is the thing that made her like get so many roles. Saoirse Ronan has been acting since, since she was a kid, man. And she's been a very good act actress since she was a, a very small child. So I think these two things are a little bit different. But you brought up some other actresses that I guess do have that, you know, memorable face to look at and also very good skills so yeah um and the ones that i guess i'm talking about i wouldn't even necessarily i don't know if they fall within the same you know girl next door type which i guess is maybe part of the reason why they've they don't gotten a boost a, like a, a leg up like in this yeah. game right now yeah they don't. Um, That's but it's thing. like yeah it's people like uh zendaya people like um queen's gambit like anya taylor joy i think she is like one of the i guess like the rare kind of like counterparts i guess you could say to people freaking out over like the the tom hollands and like timothy yeah. chalamets of the world yeah it's interesting because they're they're like elements of like sexiness or seductiveness or whatever but also they just like zendaya she's played so many roles um mm -hmm. anya taylor joy i think she's gotten to like show off her range a little bit too and the fact yeah. that the, the queen's gambit didn't have like a sort of big male counterpart for her like it was really mm -hmm. her um mm -hmm. i think that helped a lot in sort of the yeah. perception or popular perception of her i would say that like the thing that works so much in their favor is the fact that they are both very singular beauties you don't really have yes, anyone that looks like Zendaya. You don't really have anyone that looks like Anya Taylor-Joy in like the landscape of actors. Whereas like yeah. there's a million people that look like Daisy Edgar-Jones and Phoebe Deneuver. You know what I mean? Right. And I, I wonder if like maybe the reason why some of these like girl next door white girl types, I think maybe people's patience for the amount of girls that look like them have just expired. And we just need a little bit more of that singular star making quality about them. All right, so that's what we've been watching this week. Um, please tune in to our episode next week. We we are currently watching Made for Love on HBO Max. So if you guys want to watch it and then catch up with us next week, we have a really special episode next week with The Ringer's Alison Herman. We're really excited to have her on. But we will be chatting Made for Love. So all my Kristen Melotti fans, tune in. Other than that, if you are watching anything else that you think we should check out, please let us know at criticismisdead at gmail.com or just at us or DM us at criticismisdead, all one word, on Twitter and Instagram for extended show notes, including links to everything we've been talking about, plus some bonus shit. Please subscribe to criticismisdead.substack.com. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Give us a sweet little five stars. Please tell a friend about us. And we will see you all next week. Bye. bye. Watch Made for Love. Bye. Watch Made for Love. Bye, 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 bye. Criticism is Dead is produced by Pelin Keskin Liu and Jenny Ji Jung. Our music is by Rika. Our artwork and design are by Sarah Macias and Andrew Liu. 